Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Marcus Suzak is one of Australia's most successful exports, a six-time novelist best known for The Book Thief, which was an international smash hit also adapted for the screen. Ten years on, his highly anticipated follow-up arrives, the ambitious suburban epic Bridge of Clay, described by The Guardian as brilliantly illuminated and affirmatively full of life. The book celebrates both the ordinary and the outrageous and the journeys that make us. Zuzak talks writing, discipline and inspiration with Katrina Ferguson in a session supported by the Australian High Commission. We hope you enjoy it. Um, Marcus, just to kind of um, get us going, could you take us into the world of the Dunbar family? Give us a taste of who they are and what's happening in their lives when the novel opens. Yeah, I don't know, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, always, it's always the hardest thing to talk about is, uh, so how does the book start or how does the... It's, it's, it's five brothers, and I remember early on writing this, so I first got the idea for this book. There's always a story before the story. And I got the idea when I was 20 years old, and I was walking around the suburb where I grew up in Sydney, and I saw a sort of, I don't want to say a vision, but I had an image in my head of a boy who was building a bridge, and he wanted it to be perfect. And for whatever reason, like every single book, you write, you got all these ideas, but you need a little bit of luck. And yeah. well, it's not even luck, it's sort of a coincidence. And as so I in The Book Thief, I had, so not even, this is the, the problem when you're a writer, I think you stay at home. We, we joked about this earlier, that you're home all the time, but when you get in front of an audience, then you just don't stop talking. And you go, <laughs> oh, and it started way, way, way back here. <laughs> but there's always a story before the story. So in the, a, a book like The Book Thief, I had these stories from my parents that they told me, and, and I, I was the youngest of four kids, and I was spoiled in the way that <laughs> I got to spend time with my parents at a meaningful age, you know, not when I was really little. So when my sisters had moved out, my brother was doing other stuff, and they told me all this, these, their stories when I was an early teenager. And the, when I started writing that book, and then I was working with some kids at a school, and... I realised that, I, well, I got them to write about colours in the sky. And I did that. I realised I'd written about three deaths from death's point of view. And I thought, oh, I might just put that in that book that I'm setting in Nazi Germany. And, uh, and I had the idea of a girl stealing books in modern-day Sydney. And I thought, oh, I might just put that in that book that I'm setting in Nazi Germany. <laughs> Not realising... So everyone thinks that the ideas have a real depth, like from that that's what you're going to pour into it right from the beginning but it's always the little things. And in Bridge of Clay, it was one little thing that gave me the book, and it was that I named the boy Clayton. And the first, the first idea was that it was going to be called a short story, really. Not even, I can't even write short stories, you know? I can't write anything but a novel. Uh, and that his name was Clayton, and it was going to be called Clayton's Bridge. And then months went by and I've walked around more and you don't get your best ideas walking around anyway. You know, you, that's when I think of all my problems, like my taxes <laughs> and whatever else. You get your best ideas when you're sitting down working and then I just thought, not Clayton's Bridge, what about Bridge of Clay? And as soon as I thought of the title, a whole level or a whole range of sort of emotion and meaning came into it where I thought, oh, clay can be made into 
clay as a material can be made into, molded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And I saw what the ending of the book was going to be, which was that, and this isn't a spoiler, by the way, uh, <laughs> that the river would flood and he would, he would put his whole life into this bridge. He would, it would be made of him. And, but, and the test would be that the river would flood and uh, he would want to walk across top of that water to achieve some sort of greatness or transcend humanness just for a moment and because the sun's coming up that's the fire that will either set him with failure or with with triumph and uh, that doesn't really explain the answer to your question which is <laughs> at one point so when I started after the book thief essentially you know I was, it was a really interesting time to start writing a new book because I thought that book would just sink without a trace. Uh, it shows you I know nothing about publishing <laughs> or, uh, or, or business because it was the opposite. And, uh, and then I just thought, okay, what are you going to do? People would say to me, you don't have to write a, a, a better book or you don't have... And I said, well, I've always tried to write a better book. And I thought, and someone, you know, then another writer would say, oh, I'm writing a really small book now after the big book I wrote. Just write a, you know, just write a small throwaway sort of book, not throwaway, not that any book's ever a throwaway book, but then I just thought, just, no, bet everything. Yeah. Take everything that this book has given you and bet, take it all and, and bet everything. And so I thought, it's not two brothers or three brothers, it's five brothers. I have five <laughs> brothers. And they've got five, you know, as time, they've got five animals, including a mule. And the, the mule's name is Achilles, and uh, all the other animals have, have got names like Hector, and uh, Agamemnon is the goldfish, and uh, <laughs> Rosie is the dog, and, and Rosie is the only one seemingly not, is the border collie, seemingly not named after any of Homer's characters. Sorry about that. And, uh, but of course, it's after the rosy-fingered dawn, which is a mistake that the youngest Dunbar, Tommy, made. Uh, you know, when he would ask questions about the Iliad and, and, and the Odyssey, he'd say, who's Rosie, you know? And then Matthew, the eldest, would say, it's, he's talking about the sky, idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and so it, would, it was all of those sorts of... I, 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 what I realised in the end, and if I was to sum up anything, which, again, isn't the best answer to the actual question, was that I think I realised at some point when you, you arrive and you see all these boys with all these nicknames, like Rory is the human ball and chain, Clay is the smiler, Matthew's the responsible one, and when I named their mum Penelope, when I, I named her the mistake, gave her the nickname the mistake maker, I thought everyone has nicknames and it reminded me of the Iliad and the Odyssey and, uh, you know, where it's always the fast-running Achilles or or resourceful Odysseus. And I thought, oh, it's actually, what I'm trying to do is just make an attempt at a kind of suburban epic where we all think we live these dull, ordinary lives. But, you know, we, I wanted to sort of not celebrate, but just go into the bigness of our lives because we all have people, we all, we all fall in love. We all have people die on us. And uh, we all have big arguments in the kitchen. <laughs> and I wanted to go there and write a book that, that, was, that had that kind of, 
bigness to it and, uh, and a book that meant everything to me. And, uh, and that was the last thing, and finally I'll shut up in a sec, <laughs> is that uh, when, I wrote, when I finished The Book Thief, I realised I'd published four books that really meant something to me, like, meant so much to me. But at that point, I, I realised I'd written a book that meant everything to me. And so I never wanted to settle again to write a book that just meant something. And Bridge of Clay does mean everything to me and more than The Book Thief. But after 13 years um, <laughs> and all of the travails and dramas, well, not dramas, because it wasn't dramatic, it was just awful at times. Uh, and, uh, and now I just think maybe it is time to go back and just write a book that means something to me. It might at least be quicker. <laughs> And, and it certainly is. A, it's a, a long book. I found it incredibly absorbing and there's so much kind of going on in it and it works on so many levels, but there is a lot there. And um, somebody made a joke about the luminaries by Eleanor Catton and, you know, where they asked if she just forgot to stop. Um, <laughs> was, was that your problem? Was it just... <laughs> That's my problem when I speak. Um, it's... Uh... No, my problem, my, my problem was knowing word for word for word, like every single word in this book, every comma, every full stop, every single thing was deliberate and as I wanted it and everything was designed, everything, I knew this book, it was, so it wasn't so much that I couldn't stop, it was that I, it was that I couldn't m move on, it was, so I, I wrote, the the it took me about two years to write the first page. And uh, when I started, wow. I, and it originally started with the sentence, the murderer arrived at six o'clock. And I remember I even wrote it on, a on an old type, you know, you try everything. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna write on a typewriter. And you go, oh, God, that just slowed me down. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what a surprise. Uh, but, uh, geez, that slowed me down a bit, buying a typewriter on eBay and it's only got a red ribbon, you know, that works. And, then, <laughs> and I've still got some of those pages and I look back fondly on that now. Yeah. But I think it was, there was, an, there was a specific rhythm that I was writing in and there was a, every, so if you took a word out, it affected everything around it. It affected, you had to, it almost felt like I had to then rearrange the whole page because I'd changed one word. And, uh, and but the, you know, I also don't want to make it sound like, you know, that, that it's some big artistic process either. Like, I just feel like I'm a tradesman trying to, trying to sort of, create an artwork maybe, but knowing that I can't really, you know, and, it, and, and, and just giving it everything that it needs. And so I think now the, the problem, the problem I, I had, and I don't want to overplay this because I think I've only realised in hindsight, was that The Book Thief was the sort of book that I thought no one's going to read this. You know, it's a, you know, I imagine someone recommending it, trying to recommend it to a friend if they even liked it, you know, and, and the, the friend would say, well, what's it about? You know, and you go, oh, God. You know, well, it's set in Nazi <laughs> Germany, it's narrated by death, nearly everyone dies, and it's 580 <laughs> pages long, you'll love it. Uh, you know, so I thought, no one is going to read it. And so the challenge was, no one's going to read it, will you still write it? And now I look back on that as a luxury, because how better to, free, every time there was a gamble, every time I'd go, yep, yeah, take it, take it, just do it. Just, it's getting bigger, just go. Whereas with Bridge of Clay, it was the opposite, where I thought, oh God, people are going to read this book. Will and it was a new and bigger challenge to go, okay, now, 
Can you make it exactly as it needs to be? Can you do... And knowing that there are going to be people who don't love it. And we live in a world now where when people don't love things, they tell everyone. <laughs> you know, they tell everyone. You know, and one of the first classic things, and that's why, you know, you, you, someone will take a photo and then post it somewhere and they're holding the book out. It's my favourite sort of internet photo is someone's book held out. And it's, I remember one of the first ones I ever saw about Bridge of Clay was someone holding the book out. And you've got to talk about these things. Is, uh, and it said, well, that was a disappointment. <laughs> And you go, yep, thanks for that. That was 13 years' work uh, well spent. And, and, uh, but I, I, and I kind of like telling these stories because I think it's sort, of it's sort of how you deal with it, but it's also fuel to move on because you realise that um, these people aren't idiots either. I, I, even, you know, that my favourite story... Oh, sorry, got to tell this <laughs> no, one. No, go for it. All, these book, all books have all the good stories around them. And, uh, but in this, I remember at the University of New South Wales, where I went, and I was a totally anonymous student, didn't excel, didn't do anything great, didn't, you know, basically commuted and didn't, you know, but I still loved it, and I read, you know, some of the books that, you know, formed me as a writer and, and, and all those sorts of things. But um, when, they re -renov when they renovated their new bookshop, they got me to come and just give a speech. And so everyone's there. There are 250 or 300 people there. And everyone's having a great time, you know? And everyone's happy because the, the bookshop's beautiful. And then <laughs> I did, and I talked and, you know, and, and not, you know, I so rarely say something that good about myself, but even, you know, people would come up to me and say, oh, that was such a nice change from the usual pompous oratory we get, you know, and because uh, and, I just talked about being at the university when I, and how kind of pathetic I was and, uh, and uh, how there was a good... Anyway, I'm not going to go into the story of the story, all right? And so, uh, but a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, oh, oh, I know you've got these people waiting to get their books signed, but I just wanted to tell you that I read Bridge of Clay and I just... I just didn't think it was at the same notch as The Book Thief. I thought you'd like that feedback. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I stood there and I went, yeah, uh, thanks, yeah, um, thanks for telling me that right now. Uh, that's great, thank you. And, you know, and then she started, and, and, this sort of, and it, she kind of went on for another couple of minutes and, uh, and it's just what uh, I think... I think you, you, know, you can bottle those things up and you can get really hurt by those things. But at the same time, I, you walk away and you can have a laugh about it. But then I go, am I glad? I mean, I'm not glad that that happened, but would I change the book? Would I change anything in it? And probably my biggest criticism of this book, and you know, I think that's why I think days like this are at least... You know, you can come out and talk about, you know, you go, success, success, success all the time. But I, th I feel like this book, at times, if I was to be mostly, you know, to be critical of it, I'd say it was really hard work writing this book and to believe in, in it and in myself. And I think sometimes you can smell it in the book. Like, you can <laughs> you, and you can feel how hard it was. Granted, Clay Dunbar is a character who is always working, always pushing himself, always warming up, always getting himself ready for the big event, or to, and he's also shielding himself from, what's, from his wounds, you know, and what's happened to him. 
And so he's a hard work character, but sometimes I feel like it was really hard work and the hard work shows, whereas what you want is for a, a book to be really hard work, but then it appears effortless. And, uh, and, so, and so I think the toil is in there, but I still don't regret it because it's a piece of me. And, uh, and I think maybe it should reflect the hard work that it was, and, and I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't change it. There'd be a few little things that I would change, maybe just to help the reader a little bit more, but I want, I want it to be respectful to readers because readers are the sort of people who don't need to be told everything straight away. So when people are struggling with the beginning of the book and uh, just because a lot's happening, and there, it is a bit of, there is that sort of chaos, I just sort of think, no, readers can hang in there. <laughs> readers, are, readers are, you know, the odd one will come up and tell me I'm rubbish, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I think, you know, you've got to, we've got to stop. We've got to stop saying, no, let's just keep making it easier. Mm. Uh, let's have the reader come with me. There comes a point, and this is the last thing I'll say on this story. <laughs> there comes a point where you cross a line. And I think with The Book Thief, I crossed a line where I went, oh, I'm trying, I'm, I've been looking after you for so long to the audience. I've been looking after you for so long. Now you've got to come with me. Come, you know, now come with me, and I know that you can do that. And with this book, I think I crossed a line where I stopped writing it for everyone, and, I, and you've got to do that. I think that's when it becomes real, mm. and you start writing it for the people in the book. And so when I was reading through it with a, fr a, a friend of mine, it's a trusted colleague, and I was really emotional reading the end, and she said to me, Oh, who, are you, who is that in your real life that you're talking about? You know, that you're, you know, who are you thinking of when you're reading that? And I just said, I didn't say, don't you get it? I didn't say that. I thought that. I said, it's for them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, what, that's who I'm crying for. Yeah. I'm crying for them because they're real to me when I'm in it. And that's what made me want to be a writer and was reading novels and knowing it's not true, but believing it when I'm in it. You know, and, yeah. uh, and that's what I love about books in general. I mean, I, I found the um, Dunbar boys incredibly vivid. You know, they're rowdy, they're muscular, they lead this kind of semi-feral lifestyle, but they are full of love and passion. Um, and at one point, Matthew, the narrator, says, it's a mystery even to me sometimes how boys and brothers love. I mean, does that say something about what it was like growing up in the Zuzak household? Yeah, a little bit. I mean... Because I, I grew up having boxing matches in the backyard with my brother and all his friends. Mm. And because I was the youngest, I was always, I wanted to be in it, you know, <laughs> and I wanted to prove, I wasn't, it wasn't even that I wanted to prove myself, I just wanted to be there with them. And I was like, yeah, you can beat me up, uh, you know, if that's going to include me, yeah. you know. And, uh, and so it was, and I think there are these, there are these five brothers, but it reminded I, I mean, and that line, it's like I always love the Kurt Vonnegut books, you know, where it's called, uh, you know, it's called Breakfast of Champions or it's called Slaughterhouse-Five or Goodbye Blue Monday or yeah. <laughs> what, and, and if that, and maybe, and it's really interesting to, maybe that would be the other title is, it's a mystery to me how boys and brothers love. Yeah. But at the same time, much has sort of been said at home about the five brothers and that, you know, and the... And, and, and then with things in the news being, you know, centred around toxic masculinity and so on, uh, it's interesting to me that, for me, the real heart of the book is their mother, Penelope. And, 
and uh, the adoration they have for her. And, and also, it's actually the three female characters of Penelope, Carrie Novak, who's Clay's best friend, and she's an apprentice jockey. And, uh, and also a smaller character uh, uh, named Abby Hanley, who is Michael Dunbar, the father's first wife, and who becomes back. And it's one of the things I love in any story, or it's one of the reasons I love uh, City of God, the, the, the great Brazilian film, where someone's introduced and he says, that's, such a, that's steak and chips, or steak and fries. They've got these great character names too. And uh, he, we've seen him now, but he'll be important later. Mm. And then yeah. it moves on, and Abby Hanley's that kind of character where just you think you've seen her and that bit's done, and then she becomes the final person to give Clay the last impetus to build the bridge. And, but centred around those brothers, I think the last thing I would say, especially when people have sort of been, and not many have, to tell you the truth, but I think kind of, I think there was one American review that was critical of... The, the brothers and the violence of the brothers. And, and I think that I'm not, it's one of the things I'm not embarrassed about mm. is where I've just sort of gone, I wanted to write about boys, not, not as I sat down to write, now I'm gonna write about boys in a way <laughs> that's gonna, but I think the idea is always to write about boys as both how they are and how we would like them to be. Mm. And that is how they are, yeah. <laughs> because sometimes we're good and sometimes we get it wrong and, mm. and that's what I wanted these brothers to be like. And I think, to me, I had so many narrate. Everyone had a crack at narrating this book. <laughs> Carrie Novak even once had a sister and she was the original narrator for six years. And, yeah. uh, and then I said, no, that's not... That's, I don't like where it's going. It took me six years to front up to that and then just cut <laughs> it off. And, uh, but what always gets to me when I finally decided on Matthew as the narrator is at the end, and I remember when I was writing the end, and you want to end a book in total triumph as the sun's <laughs> coming up in the morning and you know all the critics are in bed, all the readers are in bed, all the people who tell you, you know, the book was disappointing, they're all in bed <laughs> when you're finishing your book. But I finished Bridge of Clay at about three in the afternoon on a humid, <laughs> awful Sydney afternoon and I thought that's how this book was always going to give it to me. And I just remember thinking by the end just how much I realised why Matthew was the right narrator. And it's interesting, to, even just getting a bit emotional now, is that he's just writing the book. It's not a proof of it, but he's writing the book to realise how much he loves his brother yeah. and that he just wants him to come home. And, uh, and, you know, even now to me, that feels real. Yeah. You know, when I just get to... And that's what's really beautiful about days like this is that, you know, you get to... Can re go dive back inside the book and, and be there again for a few moments, even though you were whinging about it the whole time you were there. You know, uh, <laughs> that's like when, when my publisher said to me when the book went off to the printer, she said, you must be ecstatic. And of course, I'm sitting there like this. Uh, you know, you, and I said to her, I'm actually a bit down. I, I, it's like I spent all those years whinging about the, yeah. the bloody book, and now I'm, now I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to live without it. Yeah. And, uh, but then that passes, and then yeah. you realise, yeah, I'm actually better off. <laughs> better off without it. Um, that feels like a really good point uh, for me to ask you maybe to read a, a short extract yeah. from the book. Sure. Um, what I'll do is I might... There are a couple of stories around this book that I, 
I love it, and I'm, I'm going to go straight off on a tangent, sorry, because uh, when it comes to reading, because you talked about uh, the town, which was Margaret River, by the way, and I love Margaret River, uh, where that first library event, but then I did a reading in Wodonga Library, and I've got nothing against country Australia, all right, but something always ha would happen there where I did a reading at the Wodonga Library, and this is no word of a lie, and... Uh, and again, this, this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, she said, I really, I really like your books, but, um, but your reading is atrocious. <laughs> atrocious is a really strong word. <laughs> and uh, so, so anyway, I'm going to read for you now. Uh, <laughs> so that's funny, and I'm going to read from where we first meet Clay when he's born. And what I might do is I'm going to read a piece and then if it comes to it, well, so my favourite story around this book was when my wife made me quit and it was the best, after ten, at the 10 year mark she said, it's been 10 years, giving you, I'm giving you one week. So, and it wasn't a week to finish, it was a week to get happy again, yeah. writing and just, but not that I was a misery, I, I get really, I get down but I don't become depressive and I, I still function and, uh, and I still, so one of the great things about having dogs and kids is that you just have to get up, yeah. you know, I mean, if, and you know, if, if generally, if it's not in your makeup to, um, to, to go the other way and, um, but the best, so I had to quit for six weeks, I couldn't write the book and it was the best thing ever because it's the old cliche is true that you don't know what you've got till it's taken off you mm. and, uh, and then I just thought, I'm just going to get my hands dirty and, and uh, just don't work so hard at working hard. You know, we all do that sometimes. It's like I'm working really hard. It's just get your hands dirty and love it again and even enjoy, enjoy the challenges of it and yeah. when things go wrong. And anyway, what would happen then is I thought, stop trying to make the book shorter. I was always trying to shorten it. And then all these little things started popping up and I remembered being on holiday the, the, the four of us and our dogs and all of that. We, all, on the, we went down the coast from Sydney, so about three hours, a place called Bendalong. And it's a little shack that I go and work in sometimes. And we're, we're there and I was, for whatever reason, it was really hot and I, I decided, and I don't know why I did this, because I never do this, I washed my car. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I even started, and I, and I started, and you can imagine what my car looks like. It's full of dog hair, sand, <laughs> lolly wrappers. And, uh, and I started um, just, I took my T-shirt off, which is something I also never do. I never take my T-shirt off. And because and, uh, and I've always been small, and I, you know, I just sort of, I'm not, you know, I'm just not that sort of guy. But I took my T-shirt off, and I um, started brushing sand out of the car, and my son appeared from around the corner. Now, again, there's always a story before the story. My kids <laughs> don't call me dad. My kids call me pop. And the reason they call me Pop is because at one point I read the Berenstain Bears to them. I, well, from oh, yeah, the, the actual books that I had from my own childhood, it had my brother's name in it. They never had my name in it, you know, <laughs> because I got all the hand-me-downs. And, uh, and so I read the Berenstain Bears, and from gauging from the audience, of course, people know those books. But you know how the dad's always trying to teach the kids something, but the dad's a real idiot? <laughs> and they call him Pop. All right, and so we read those, and so my kids, of course, started calling me Pop uh, on the grounds that I was a bit like the dad in the, uh, in the Berenstain Bears. And so my son came around the corner as I'm brushing sand out of the car and uh, all that sort of, and, you know, whatever, and he saw me, and he stopped in his tracks, and he, his, his exact words, he just stopped, and he said, hey, Pop, 
what are you doing here in just your nipples? <laughs> and, uh, and of course, of course, I've gone. Two thoughts came into my head. I just went, that's genius. Uh, and, and my kid, and let me just say, my, my kids are 12 and 8, and they're not gifted or, or anything. They're just normal, good kids, you know? And, uh, and so, but they have these, of course they have these moments of genius, and he was four at the time. And, uh, and a four-year-old is a genius in that way. They come out with the best stuff. And then, of course, my second thought was, I might be able to use that. And, uh, so... Anyway, here's a, I'm going to read a little bit about when Clay was born, and then I'm going to read one other little piece, and then we'll, we'll see. So, <clears throat> once in the tide of Dunbar Pass, there were five brothers, but the fourth of us was the best of us, and a boy of many traits. How did Clay become Clay, anyway? In the beginning, there was all of us, each our own small part to tell the whole, and our father had helped every birth. He was first to be handed to hold us. As Penelope liked to tell it, he'd be standing there, acutely aware, and he'd cry at the bedside, beaming. He never flinched at the slop or the burnt-looking bits as the room began to spin. For Penelope, that was everything. When it was over, she'd succumbed to dizziness. Her heartbeat leapt in her lips. It was funny they liked to tell us how when we were born, we all had something they loved. Me, it was my feet, the newborn crinkly feet. Rory, it was his punched-up nose when he first came out and the noises he made in his sleep. Something like a world title fight, but at least they knew he was alive. That's actually the description of my kids when they were born. My daughter's feet were what I loved. But, and our son came out and his nose was squashed across the side of his face. And uh, it was like he'd come out of a scrum. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we said to the doctor, we said, have a, have a look at his nose. And the doctor leaned in, and he's gone, oh, yeah. And he reached out, and he just went. <laughs> and then it was straight. And we went, how good is that? <laughs> and, anyway, uh, Henry had ears like paper. Tommy was always sneezing. And of course, there was Clay between us, the boy who came out smiling. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman. On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over. Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. But what she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt, to humiliate, or to love and make great? Even now, it's hard to decide. It was morning, summer and humid, and when they made it to the maternity ward, Penny was shouting, still walking, and his head was starting to crown. He was very nearly torn rather than born, as if the air had reefed him out. In the delivery room, there was a lot of blood. It was splayed on the floor like murder. As for the boy, he lay in the muggy atmosphere and was strangely, quietly smiling, his blood-curdled face dead silent. When an unsuspecting nurse came in, she stood open-mouthed and blaspheming. She stopped and said, Jesus Christ. It was our mother, all dizzy, who replied. I hope not, she said. <laughs> and our father still grinned. We know what we did to him. 
Now, and then I'm just going to move a few years forward, which is covered in the space of, you know, a page. But you'll recognise uh, this as just the kind of life that these people lived when they were really happy. And this was like the Zuzak household, I think. <laughs> in those days, too, I remind myself our parents were something else. Sure, they fought sometimes, they argued. There was the odd suburban thunderbolt, but they were mostly those people who'd found each other. They were golden and bright lit and funny. Often they seemed in cahoots somehow, like jailbirds who wouldn't leave. They loved us, they liked us, and that was a pretty good trick. After all, take five boys, put them in one small house and see what it looks and sounds like. It's a porridge of mess and fighting. I remember things like mealtimes and how sometimes it got too much, the forks dropping, the knives pointing, and all those boys' mouths eating. They'd be arguing, elbowing, food all over the floor, food all over our clothes, and how did that piece of cereal end up there, on the wall, <laughs> until a night came when Rory sealed it. He spilt half his soup down his shirt. Our mother didn't panic. She stood, cleaned up, and he would eat the rest of it shirtless. And our father got the idea. We were all still celebrating when he said it. You lot too. Henry and I nearly choked. Sorry? You didn't hear me? Oh, shit, said Henry. Should I make you take your pants off too? For a whole summer, we ate like that. Our T-shirts heaped near the toaster. To be fair, though, and to Michael Dunbar's credit, from the second time onwards, he took his own shirt off with us. Tommy, who was still in that beautiful phase when kids speak totally unfiltered, shouted, Hey, hey, Dad, what are you doing here in just your nipples? <laughs> Told you I'd use it. Um, uh, thank you. The rest of us roared with laughter, especially Penny Dunbar, but Michael was up to the task, a slight flickering in one of his triceps. And what about your mum, you blokes? Should she go shirtless too? She never needed rescuing, but it was Clay who'd often be willing. No, he said, but she did it. Her bra was old and scruffy looking. It was faded, strapped to each breast. She ate and smiled regardless. She said, now don't go burning your chests. We knew what to get her for Christmas. <laughs> and it's a uh, thank you. Where's that guy in Wodonga now? Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's funny reading that because when I say every word was accounted for, the description of Penny's bra in that thing was always described as being broken looking. And I overused broken as a word and I just couldn't, I was like, oh, do I, what's the, and then what, for weeks I was troubled by it. And then I just woke up one morning and just went, scruffy. And I just went, that's it. Yeah. And because and as soon as I said it, what it reminded me of and what I was trying to remember or what I was looking for, and it gave it to me was the right vision matched to my own experience, which is what I, again, that whole idea of what a novel is, is just giving you a world you don't know anything about and finding yourself in it. And, uh, and what it reminded me of was just seeing our clothesline as a kid and, you know, and just how shitty and, and, you know, all that crappy underwear hanging from the, from the clothesline. <laughs> and uh, and it, I saw that so clearly just in that split second and I went, oh, that's actually it. And in fact, the clothesline does crop up 
on, on a few occasions, doesn't it, particularly um, with Achilles, it's Achilles the mule, mm. isn't it, who kind of stands under it looking a little bit kind of tragic and lonely. And also pegs. Clay has a, a peg which he kind of uses as a, as a talisman. Yeah, Clay carries pegs or uh, clothesline pegs around yeah. like a... You know, well, they're, they're symbolic of a moment that happened in the clothesline. And Achilles the mule stands under the clothesline. And I think the line is, well, I know the line is that uh, he's corralling the restless spirits. And uh, because something didn't necessarily happen under that clothesline, but it was the last thing that happened mm. before. And, uh, and, and so there are lots of little, I've always been a collector of things. And so I'll find something on the street and I'll pick it up and keep it. And, it's, and so I always feel really bad when I tell my son not to pick up that <laughs> awful, you know when they pick up a seagull feather that looks like it's 100 years old? Yeah. And, uh, and but I can understand it because, and it's, it's all, when Clay leaves the house to go and build the bridge, he takes one thing from each of his yeah. brothers, and one of them is a pigeon feather from Telemachus, and it's one of the things, and this is the thing about, again, coming back to the idea that uh, you don't need to know everything straight away, but you'll be given a clue. And when Clay takes the pigeon feather out of Telemachus, he's, it says he's, it's, he snaps at his neck, and, and so many people have said to me, oh, I took a deep breath, I thought he... Killed the pigeon, and I said, "Yeah, but and I, I do. I did insert a line saying that his heart was beating when he put him back in. But there's always an element with clay, always an element where, and that's just a little clue saying, you don't know what I'm capable of. Yeah. And uh, and so clay, as Matthew says, is the one who took everything on his shoulders, mm -hmm. you know, um, for everybody else. And he's seemingly, and he thinks himself that he's building this bridge to make this one great, perfect, beautiful thing to save himself, but it's for all of them. And uh, even he doesn't quite realise that. I think the, the other brother, I mean, Matthew and Clay are, are really obviously very central, and the other brother that really leapt out at me was Rory, mm -hmm. um, who is possibly, you know, the most roughly tufty of, of the brothers, but I thought the way that his tender, gentle side was shown through the relationship with Hector, the cat. Yeah. Was, <laughs> I, I laughed like that because some people have said to me, there are a lot of love stories in this book, but I think the love story at the heart of it is between Rory and Hector, yeah. the tabby. <laughs> and it's sort of like right from the moment where there's the great bedroom swap and uh, Henry, um, Henry and Clay move in together and Rory has to go and bunk in with, with Tommy and the cat is on the bed. And, uh, and the first thing he does is he walks in and he says, get rid of the cat, shithead. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's something that they've never quite been able to accomplish. And it was one of those... And you have these little favourite moments that you did write because they were, fun, they were fun. And I think one is where Rory's hung over in the morning and Hector is wrapped around his neck like a, <laughs> like a wrestler. And he says to Clay, can you just get this bloody cat off me? And, uh, you know, and, and that's after he's, he's brought a letterbox down the street the night before and dumped it on their lawn. And Matthew says, that letterbox has got to go. You know, you've got to take it back to where it's where it's from, and he says, I don't know where it's from. You know? And he says, well, it's got a number on it, hasn't it? And he says, yeah, but I don't know what street. <laughs> you know, and it's just, and I think that's, and I think that's just, you know, listen to a, 
a rugby team when they're on the train. Mm. And, and I, I've never listened in on people's conversations or I've never been that kind of writer who says, oh, listen, you know, and it's always funny when you're in a really terminal high school staff room or something, which there aren't many of, but there are a few out there, let's face it. And then they're just talking all of this bitterness and whatever <laughs> else, and they say, oh, God, better be careful, everyone. Marcus might put this in one of his books. And you go, I would rather, well, you don't say it, but you think, I'd rather shoot myself <laughs> than put any of this or you in a book. <laughs> but, but, um, but because it, it's sort of that thing, of, it's like when my son said that thing to me when I was cleaning out the car, you just you recognise it when it stands up in front of you. Mm. If you go looking for it, you'll never find it. Yeah. Um, and I think that, although, the, as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a lot of heartbreak in this novel, but there is also humour as well. And one of those early scenes where Michael, um, also known as the murderer, comes back to revisit his sons and he walks into the kitchen and the mule is kind of there and he's like, yeah, of course, there's a mule. Um, and I'm sort of wondering how you, how you balance that kind of humour with the sort of more kind of emotional and, and sort of heavier parts of the book. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's mostly intuitive. Mm. And I think that the scene that I read, mm. you, you can see uh, that it's changed from that first little anecdote that I told. It's been moved into the kitchen. And then it, there's change in the... So it could have just ended with, what are you doing here? And maybe it should have, I don't know. But, but then there's the change. It comes back mm. to the moment where Clay tries to rescue Penny. And yeah. then it turns to her. And so I just always feel like you're... It's, it's that idea... I know the Australian writer Sonia Hartnett actually colour codes her structure when she's writing out what she's going to do in the book and she assigns characters different colors so that there's balance in the in the color of the of the book and yeah. in the mood of the book and uh, and I think that's all I'm trying to do I'm just balancing between light and shade and I just sort of have a feeling for mm. oh we actually just need we do need a laugh here or yeah. or in the case of Rory it's it's really I mean two of the the moments that always affected me the most when I was writing the book, and this goes back to, I mean, I was, I, I went to, to Florence to, this is when you never complain about your job, you know, <laughs> to do research on Michelangelo, because he's such an inspiration to Clay and to Michael Dunbar, but I remember writing the moment in the book where, where Rory says to Matthew, because Matthew trains Clay as a as an athlete, as a, as a 400 metre runner, and Clay is not getting any faster. And Rory just grabs him and, uh, and he, he says, you don't, the problem is it's too nice, he wants to hurt. And uh, if, you wanna, if you want him to run faster, you have to try to stop him. That's how you're gonna make him run faster. Try and stop him and he says, and he has to feel it here. He says he has to hurt as much as we hurt because that's how we fucking live. You know, that's where you've got to go. And just the other thing where, where Clay, and now digressing again, but when Clay takes the Monopoly iron when he leaves to go and build the bridge, you find out 300 pages later why that is. Mm. And it's because of the great Monopoly yeah. uh, 
you know, it wasn't a disaster, but the big fight over Monopoly in the kitchen where um, Rory cheats and tries to go 11 space. I mean, who hasn't had this happen? Uh, <laughs> you know, Rory tries to cheat and Matthew's like, go back one and fork out 25, you're on my railway. And uh, Rory's like, I went, ten, I went 10. He's like, no, you went 11. And they, they pinch it out for the Monopoly <laughs> iron. And then when Matthew... The chapter was originally, it's called Merchants and Swindlers, that chapter. It was originally called The Day I Ate, um, the, day I ate the Monopoly Iron, or The Day I Ate the Iron. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and Matthew said, he, when Rory goes in to, to check, or he's distracted because of something in the lounge room, and, uh, and Penny has called out, and she's really sick by then. And Matthew says to Rory, when he comes back, and the, or the iron's gone, he says, Wait, look, where is it? Where's the, what? And Matthew says, I ate it. <laughs> and there's this whole thing. And Rory goes out, gets a rusty nail and puts it on and he says, try eating that. And, uh, and Penny, who's close to death by then, she yells out, to the, calls out to the kitchen. She says, hey, Rory, check Matthew's left pocket. Yeah. And, uh, and Rory reaches out and he pulls out. Um, so it is, it's sort of so... You know, I don't know why, like, I get like this. Maybe it's because I haven't had breakfast. <laughs> Just got something in my eye. Uh, and, uh, but he, and, and he, he holds the monopoly on, and he stands up, and he looks at Matthew, mm. and he says, God, how, how the hell are we going to live without it? Yeah. You know, and, oh. and so I think, you know, a good friend of mine, I mean, and it's not, it is for them, and, but a, a friend of mine did die of cancer when I was writing this book, and that's not where it came from, that idea. Um, but, you know, and that's what happens when it takes you 13 years to write a book, people die. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and it, it's just, uh, but I, I, I didn't want to be, uh, I wanted to be irreverent about it. And, you, and I'd read books where it, it was all about the illness and the death, and, and we need books like that, obviously. But I thought of my friend who had, and she was such a big personality, mm. she had such a great life. You know, so I wanted that to be Penelope's story. It was the great life she led, she led that um, didn't, that ended in in a spectacularly tragic way. But it was the life she led that that was the heart of this book. I think. Um, I did once ask a writer um, who'd written a number of very sad books if he cried when he wrote his books, and he looked at me as if I was really weird. So I'm quite glad that you're kind of having that emotional oh, response. It's I, you know, for the whole always for the, the whole last part, and it was the same with The Book Thief as well. And, uh, you know, and my, my feeling is if I'm not, well, then there's something mm. wrong in the case of, these, of those two books. And not so much my, my other books, but it just that's where these books went, and it's kind of what I wanted. And to feel that uh, was, was really important to me. And, mm. uh, and they are emotional books, and I, and I kind of like going... Even if I'm sort of criticised for... The, for uh, you know, maybe going too far. The book like the book thief. I thought, sort of thought there was a, an exuberance to it as well, where I thought I do look at it now and go, "Geez, I went too far with some of the stylistic things, and and maybe with some of the emotion, and maybe I'll look back on this." But I sort of start to think now it's probably better to go too far than not far enough. Yeah, and um, just to go back briefly to Penelope, actually. I mean, she really is, as you say, she's kind of the heart of the book, um, and she brings a real kind of lightness, I think, into the, the novel, even though her story is a, is a sad one. Where did she come from as a, as a character? Yeah, she... It was more... It was... Okay, so this is... 
So a lot of my life and a lot of who I am, and when I talk, like I just love this idea that we are all who we are, or we become who we are long before we're even born. You know, these stories are embedded in us when we're born. And my wife uh, came to Australia when she was seven years old or six years old, and uh, from Eastern Europe, from Poland, and. And her parents, uh, and I think it's that Penelope is sort of based on, or started with the idea of her parents coming to Australia and arriving in February on one of those god awful days and just going, oh, we've just come, we've just moved to the sun. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and then they'd never seen a cockroach before, you know, and, uh, and, and so it was one of the, the first ideas for Penelope's story was that, you know, that she, the camp where she, she was in, and, and they came to Villawood, my parents-in-law and, and my wife, and they were in that, and, you know, but just the idea that the room didn't really belong to them, it really belonged to a squadron of cockroaches, you know, and, uh, and, the, and it said that the first thing Penelope bought in Australia was a pair of thongs yeah. and a can of bagon. So yeah, this was the sort of country you could get by in with crap footwear and, yeah. uh, and, and fly spray. So, uh, and so, so they, and, and, but the, one of the big ones, and I think this was, I asked my mother-in-law, and it, this didn't make it into the book, but it's always that, there's always that, there's something under, under the book, you know? And in this case, um, she said, you know, the first six months, I, I cried every day. Yeah. Every day I cried, you know, and you've come to this country that's going to give you this great opportunity, but it's so hard. Yeah. You know, I cried every day. And then she said that was, that when she, when they all went back to Poland for the first time, and I said, did, did everyone, you know, understand that, you know? Yeah. And she said, no, nobody asked. Everyone just thought that we were the lucky ones, yeah. you know, and we, and we, she said, and we were, but there was so much you know, that we had to go through mm. as well. I mean, not in any kind of self-pitying way, yeah. but, but everyone, and it was the experience that everyone there just thought they were now rich, yeah. you know, and so they'd go back and everyone wanted something. Yeah. You know, it was sort of like, we haven't got anything. Yeah. You know, we're just kind of getting by and, you know, but then, you know, working through the decades, that's how they, they did, you know, carve out a life as so many people have. Yeah, well, she is certainly a wonderful character. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.